To give a fuck or to not give a fuck? That is the fucking question. Do you strive for acceptance or do you nurture a vision? The greatest artists in history were fucking rebels who changed the world to align to their vision. But a lot of them died poor. So there is that aspect to it. Fuck. Nobody said it was going to be easy to be an artist. I'm your host, Gabe Wells, and this is the Saturate Life Podcast, episode number 15, with the painter and host of the Live Free Podcast, Mike Maxwell. I wonder if, like, this idea of being honest and open about shit, if, like, if that will in turn help solve problems before they become them you know and maybe that's kind of a grandiose idea with just podcasting but i think the openness and honesty that's becoming about with like the these guys high up in government officials leaking documents and like the whole like house of cards structure we all know it's it's bullshit so like i think those kids growing up now will have all had all this level of honesty and extra information even beyond outside of school and like the social interactions of people and like the interactions of people in different countries like the knowledge of what's happening in different countries it's so weird to see like past entertainment and you know like social commentary turn into reality like like Orwell would be rolling in his grave, right? Like yeah. seeing 1984, like I, this feels like 1984 right now. Like every time I look at my computer screen, which I sit in front of, you know, it's right in front of me in my studio working every day with that little green light turned on up there at the mm-hmm. very top of the screen with the little eyeball pointing at me. It feels exactly like how it felt when I read 1984. Like that moment, like how like he couldn't say anything bad about the government because the little eyeball on the TV, it was it was described as a TV in the book, a TV that could see into the rooms and they would have to like avoid all the cameras. And so it's it's, it's very fucking creepy. Like the the sense that I get, like I almost want to, I, I, I've been saying this for a while. Like I want to go back and read it again, 1984 mm-hmm. specifically, because I, I, you know, I read it as a young man and maybe the context didn't necessarily match up quite as well as it does now as a semi-wise er no it, it really <laughs> does it really does because then i mean think about this too uh in, in 1984 there was this thing where everybody went to a movie theater movie theater and they had this five minutes of hate you know there was just like this patriotic hate towards whatever um yeah, other, whatever it was yeah. what is fox news besides five minutes of hate my last mushroom trip i watched fox news for what? like 15 minutes <laughs> Mind you, let me preface this by saying, you know, four hours before that, I had been out in the mountains, like at the top of this peak in the middle of nature with like nothing surrounding me. Oh, that's awesome. But there there was a time frame from when I left that po- that place, went to my house to get some supplies, and then I ended up doing uh, my first sensory deprivation tank float, which was like the coming down part of the mushrooms. But while I was watching Fox News... It looked like a goddamn circus. Like the, <laughs> all the flashing light and yes. all, all the fakeness of it was so apparent. And I mean, even smoking weed, it becomes apparent how fake a lot of shit is when you watch it on television. Like you pick up even like really good actors, like you pick up the fakeness in actors just from smoking weed. Like it mm-hmm. sort of it clears some shit up. But watching Fox News with mushrooms, which is the the real heightened sense of that, like all pure bullshit i know i'm pretty sure glenn beck was on so he's even more of like a circus ringleader you know and Mm -hmm. like serious like barnum and bailey type fuck and you know like lions jumping and shit but like the show like the set on the show looks so psychedelic and fake and fucking bizarre that i really i kind of wanted to watch it like it sounds terrible to think of watching fox news while you're high on mushrooms but there was a com- a comedic value to it, like seeing the bullshit for even for like it's like pulling down one extra screen of bullshit. Like, OK, you're a, a rational person. You see through the first level of bullshit. 
all right, you added a little weed in there, a little fucking cannabis. You take down that fucking next curtain and see some more bullshit. If you had some mushrooms on top of that, like you really perceive the fakeness that is perceived as reality on um, for a good majority of people. Yeah. So what was your sensory depri- deprivation tank like? Because I've been there's a bunch right here in Denver and I haven't done it yet, but I'm really interested in doing it. Uh, it was good. I it's funny my my homie that was driving me around. We pulled up to the how it was actually there's this portion of Pacific Beach that is used by um, medical professionals like doctor like like uh, private practice doctors and dentists and like massage therapists where it's like right where a business district meets up with um, residential area. So the buildings look really residential. They're like houses that are, uh, you know, uh, subsection to be businesses as well. You know what I mean? So it's like a legal thing, but it looks kind of shady, you know, (laughs) and if you're on mushrooms. So I pull up and, you know, I had set an appointment and I get there and there's two guys standing in the front door with the door open, like to this lower portion of the building, like with their arms crossed and looked really pale and like kind of sickly, I was like, oh man, it had like a real Bates Motel sort of like feel to it. I was wow. like, I was like, wait, I think I just made a mistake. And like, I was like, look at these fucking guys, like really loud to my, my <laughs> realizing that the fucking windows are down and they, I'm sure they heard me. But so like, I got nervous. I was like, fuck, I'm not doing this shit. Fuck that. You know, there's no way. And you know, then that was just the mushrooms making me anxious or whatever. Yeah. But I was like, all right, that's just, and I talked myself through it, and my buddy was like, stop being a pussy, just go fucking. <laughs> and so I got out and, and went and did it. And the guys were really nice, but they were super, like, new age, post-hippie, middle-aged dudes, you know, like, real esoteric type. Not to say that in a negative light, but just as a descriptive um, way of describing them. And so I ended up, I got, I got in, you know, it took me a long time to get comfortable um, like floating, it feels like you try to control your neck muscles, even though you don't have to, like you, you know, the muscles that you use to float in a pool, you know, you kind of use some of your core muscles, you use like the back of your neck and to like hold your head up above water. Well, you don't have to do that in that much salt water you float and, but it feels like you're still tensing up, you know, for me anyway. And, you know, as an artist, I have in somebody who does a lot of graphic work too. I'm, I have terrible posture in my shoulders. And neck. <laughs> yeah. So uh, when I got in, it took me a while to figure out how to get comfortable. As you move, you start to bump against the sides. Your feet will hit the bottom or your head will hit the top. So you really have to stay really still and try to allow all your muscles to let loose. And I found for me, even though I find that there's a bit of a negative consequence, um, I like to put my hands behind my head, sort of like if you were laying in the grass, like looking up at the stars or some shit, like that sort of idea. But you can feel your hair or the back of your head with your hands. So you sort of take away some of that sensory deprivation that is sort of the purpose. But um, once I got settled and kind of figured out, I got salt water in my eyes too. So like (laughs) if you don't want to pick your hands up over the top of your face, because if one drip gets on your forehead or like runs down your face, it's getting into the corner of your eyes and that salt water burns like a bitch. I had to get out (laughs) and they actually give you a little bowl of water and like a little um, washcloth in case that happens, at least the place that I went to. Um, But I finally got settled. And it was really weird. Like I had um, at the time, I had a lot of wrist pain. I was getting cysts in the joint of my wrist and hand from oh, all the drawing and painting. Um, which actually, I, I I got three of them, um, and it hasn't come back in years, thankfully. Uh, but so I was having a lot of pain, like almost like arthritic type pain in my wrist and my elbow. And up in, like, the base of the neck and shoulder. So once I finally got settled, like, there was this weird sensation that I got in all those pain points. So, like, it almost felt like like when the blood rushes to your head, it almost felt like blood was rushing to those points where there was pain. And they, like, it almost felt like it got warm. And the sensation eventually subsided. And the pain went away in those positions, which was really interesting. Like, and... To be able to actually 
like sense it happening was was different because you know when you have pain a lot of times you like go to bed then wake up the next day and it's gone and it had gone started to go away so gradually that you didn't even notice that it happened but to notice something happen in an instant was very interesting um i was i was just talking to my dad yesterday um about i went to the chiropractor recently because i've been like i said i had shitty fucking posture and my back is all fucked up yeah. plus i do jiu-jitsu too so i'm getting rolled over my head and grappling with fucking gorillas all the time oh shit um, but when i was sitting on the chiropractor table and getting my getting cracked i my eyes were closed and i saw like a purple light you know like a like an iridescent like spinning light behind my eyes you know, like if you looked at the sun and closed your eyes, yeah, you'd see behind your eyelids. Yeah. And I saw something like that. And he was telling me that in some type of yoga or, or massage or something, that there's like if you see certain colors behind your eyelids while you're getting chiropractor work or something like that, that they have certain meanings, which I don't know if that's bullshit or not. Like, I think it's like with the chakras, I think there's some sort of. I just told some kid not to get off on too much of a tangent that the word Kundalini really drives me fucking batshit. Like, I, if I hear it, I want to strangle somebody. <laughs> and it's not them. It's just like the the syllables and the letters that are in that particular phrase just make me not feel good. Kundalini. Yeah, I, I can't stand it for some reason. Like, whenever I hear somebody say it, I was like, all right, this person's a dickhead. <laughs> so, uh, so in the tank, I was seeing like this like red light sort of running around for a bit behind my eyelids, you know, or the, you get to a point because it's pitch black that you actually kind of forget if your eyes are closed or if your eyes are open, you okay. know, because there's no there's no light source in there. And it's um, then like the comfort level afterwards, like there is a, a calmness that like it felt like, you know, like after you get a massage, you feel like super relaxed. There was a lot of that, like, and you know, I think it's really good for muscle recovery too. So, I think there is some, some of that playing in there. And it, to be honest, like that mushroom trip that I had was really stressful. Like there was a lot of like questioning a lot of my choices. Like there was a lot of like tension in like look at what you're what choices you're making and how yeah. they're affecting you. Like there was some entity, not like something around me, but like. An inter an inner entity like making me question myself and really like putting the stress on me and I was like fuck and I knew what I was going through like I got it I understood and but when I finally got in the tank that was like the like let like finally like that stress let off and I I got to enjoy um, a good hour and a half of of calmness and it actually took me out of all that self mind awareness. And went into a more body awareness, which was really it. I think it might be beneficial for a lot of people who for people on mushrooms, like once you get to the end of the trip, like you can be done tripping like through the majority of the psychedelic phase and jumping into a tank after that period and allowing yourself after all like your brain feels like you ran a marathon uh, sometimes you know, in certain environments, like especially on like a solo mushroom trip where it's just you tripping, dealing with yourself. Like there's a there's a different level than, say, if you're at in like a party environment where you're just having fun with your friends. Like that tends to be a different type of experience. But if you're doing like the mind shit where it feels like you ran a marathon, jumping in the tank for an hour at the like at maybe like hour seven, six or seven of a mushroom trip is is I think beneficial to the body and it gives the mind a break because it's all that extra sensory overload. It's a very interesting dichotomy to have the hyper sensory overload where your pupils are blowing out of your eyeballs and you're experiencing sounds and sense and sights in a far more extreme way than your normal reality to go from that to shutting down all the sensory organs and just going to the internal becomes uh, like the yin and yang. Like there's a weird balance to it. And I think it helped me on the transition out to like sort of digest some of that stuff, like let it marinate or whatever. So it's it's interesting to to pay attention to your body in that sort of way in a, in a much more functional um, environment, like in the tank where 
you're able to shut down because we can't like right now i know that i'm wearing shorts and a t-shirt like but when you're in the tank you sort of lose that sense i think i want to i want to go back to that place again i haven't gone back there um and see how they how they've upgraded since the last time i was down there you should do it though i recommend it i'm going to yeah i want to take an edible and go in there and just hang out because i i meditate and i want to get in the in the tank to take away that feeling of my ass on the ground because you can get i don't know did you do you meditate or did you meditate before going in the tank no uh -uh. but you know i talk about this a lot on my show that the act of excuse me the act of making art is meditative in and of itself and there's a lot of for I find the same thing with jujitsu. There's a lot of different things that are the same idea. Um, maybe not as direct, maybe not as structured, maybe not even recognized consciously by the participant. But they're, for me, specifically painting, I, you know, I, for me, it's like exactly the state that uh, uh, like a Buddhist monk is trying to reach in a, in a serious meditation. Now, of course, uh, because of my lack of experience trying other forms, I can't really say that for certain. But from based on my experience and from talking with people that I know who also meditate, it feels like it's the same thing. Like there's different routes to get there, you know. And I, yeah, sorry. there's. So like, I would say yes, I do probably, but maybe yeah, in yeah, a way. There's Zen meditation that's like called walking meditation. And it is all about focus. It's all about being here in the now. I mean, you hear that, like, be here right now. If you're, if you're not here, you're nowhere. What is it? Something like that. Yeah. Um, so, well, yeah, being in the present. Yeah, you have to be in the present. And meditation gets you in that present moment. Artwork gets you in that present moment as well. But, yeah, so I, I totally agree. I totally agree. When I look at some of your work, the line work on your, on your uh, some of your recent stuff especially is really fucking good, right? Thanks. So, yeah, I because I, when I look at it, I'm like, I see a lot of focus in your line work. I'm wondering if, how much jujitsu helped your artwork. Um, I'm sure it probably does. I haven't really thought about it, to be honest with you. Like, I guess on some level, it I've learned a, a greater amount of patience from jujitsu. Like, I'm a, I'm, like I said, I don't even sit at fucking red lights. I'm super fucking impatient. <laughs> so maybe, you know, when it comes down to doing the line work, like even... You know, like painting hair, like I say that's meditative because I'm doing the same brushstroke nonstop. So it's like a mantra almost. It's like a nonverbal mantra to where it's the same thing. Like it's I'm I'm having a conversation with the brush and the medium and, you know, working together with them in a certain way that becomes it's not so much about the finished product, but as it's like the 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 steps and processes that I go through to do it like yeah I like looking back at my paintings and looking at them like holy shit I fucking made that like there's <laughs> almost a disconnect yeah, yeah you know like it's my mind shuts off to a certain extent to where I'm that's when stuff gets really good when I could just put hours into stuff and it feels like it's only been in twenty minutes it's, yes it's a strange feeling to have a full day go by. And it, even even if you don't get that much work done, because sometimes the, there's a there's a level of there's a, a high amount of work that goes into doing something that doesn't look like it's that much work. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So you actually learned you learned painting from your grandfather. Well, that's that was my very first painting. Like my grandfather was a like middle California oil like landscape painter, like real Bob Rossi kind of which was popular in like I guess I want to say I want to say Santa Barbara but it's not Santa it's somewhere somewhere middle California um and he also lived down here in San Diego my grandma too was a, a painter uh like she did a lot of like really cool oil rose like still life type of works and so he had a little studio set up on the side of his um mobile home and whenever we'd go over there like we would just work on stuff. And so what, at one point we made two paintings together where he made, we made the exact same painting where he would show me a brushstroke and then I would emulate the brushstroke. That's awesome. And, you know, sort of, I would go off into my own crazy. It's funny. Like I still have the paintings and the one painting is the signature that I did. I did an MM 
but there's the M's are so big and in the middle of the sky, you could tell like what that I'm obviously a young child, mm. but I was able to recreate what was what was taught to me. Like I had the capability if I knew what to do, but you saw when I got loose when I was just given free reign to do whatever I wanted <laughs> that I did two big M's in the middle of the sky. Yeah. It looks like, uh, like silhouettes of birds flying through, <laughs> like the middle of the thing of like a, a nice, like landscape. Painting. <laughs> so, yeah. That like started me out, but and even my mom was, a, is a really good artist. Like she was oh, wow. always able to, she drew, drew portraits a lot when I was a kid and I always wanted to be able to, draw the figure as well as she did and so i always had this like um this challenge ahead of me like i saw this i saw what was capable of being made and i've always been very interested in challenges like i was just saying it recently i quit smoking cigarettes like eight or nine years ago and what really helped me do it was how one of my really good friends insinuated that i wouldn't be able to do it like i I wasn't (laughs) capable so just like i it's um, i almost quit smoking cigarettes just out of spite which i'm so thankful for yeah but like just because he said i couldn't do it i was like well fuck you i'll prove you wrong and i've always kind of i've always had that attitude along with a drive for wanting to improve myself right like like and in in that and not only that but like I recognize probably at a young age that I got a little bit of extra attention for it too, which I, I, I try to always like give that some credence, like, because it's so important. I think a lot of artists have this and me included, like we really need fucking attention from the public. Like we need to be told that the shit that we're making is good. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that a lot of people are willing to admit that. Like, I feel like it's a fault to a certain extent, but I'm conscious of it. And because I'm conscious of it, I can sort of uh, derail it when it rears its ugly head. But that's not to say that I always catch it in time. You know, like I, you know, I want, I talked to Ed Templeton about this on my show. Like he was like, I want those fucking Instagram likes. Like I want everybody to like my shit. Yeah. I want like, you know, I want all the big fucking famous galleries to want to fucking show my stuff and all these rich dickhead collectors to buy the fucking <laughs> things for expensive amounts of money. Yeah. But you know, maybe that's not the the future, you know, like I've been thinking about this a lot too. Like the, the move from people we're, I feel like we're moving back into a do-it-yourself society. So from like 9-11 till now, we've had a very close relationship with needing the protector role in society. So like the military and government plays this like big brother role of protecting you from everyone. And then we're really connected to corporatism. We need all like the quick, fast food. We need easy, cheap, uh, bagged, processed things to get fat on and before that there was a you know a lot of do-yourself music do-yourself art so i'm curious i'm wondering if we we're moving into another do-it-yourself phase where artists start selling their own work they don't rely on a brick and mortar gallery to really promote their stuff i mean we see a lot of even but you know it's funny even like the major art blogs now are even corporate entities to an extent it's like mm-hmm. once you make enough money you have to keep making more money and at some point you just become a corporation where and the problem with the corporation is that it's just interested in the bottom line most of the time like it's about profit mm-hmm. so there's not a lot of room to move when it's just about profit so i feel like we're moving into this section this section of history where Artists are selling all their own prints. They're doing their own things. We have the. I'm I'm curious to see if we move from brick and mortar galleries as most industry begins to sort of dissipate from the real world into the digital world. How much the art market selling moves into the digital world as opposed to paying rent. Like like let's say you know a famous artist who's doing really well in a gallery scene can just as well put up a website store and list a bunch of paintings for their full price and and take the full price. I think it is kind of moving towards that because I know I've listened to, do you know who Martin Whitfoot is? 
Yeah, yeah. I listened to one of his podcasts. There was a guy that they had on one of their shows that was involved in the marketing of artwork. And he was talking about how pretty much those galleries are fearing now is that they are taken out of the equation. And in a lot of ways, I think it's really good. I mean, uh, look at like, I mean, Louis C.K. did it for comedy, right? He started, he put his special out online. He did really well. And other people started doing it. It's fantastic because now I get to buy these comedy specials for five bucks online. It's great. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, people are doing it like Doug Benson did it with their do- his documentary, his new one, um, Greatest Movie Ever World, which is really good. Did you see me in that? No, no, was you I weren't in it? in it, but he, neither was Joe Rogan, though. So. Neither was Joe Rogan, so. Wasn't, yeah. We, you should watch uh, it. It's good. I saw, yeah, oh, dude, I to. off topic, saw Doug Benson on Mother's Day of this year, and fucking funniest show I've seen, I don't know, one of the funniest stand-ups I've ever seen in my life. And none of it was on script. It was all just him doing whatever. Like, he's so fucking witty. But anyway. Have you seen Joey Diaz? Live? No, I haven't. He hasn't... I, I haven't, um, I don't know if he's come to Denver recently. Yeah, I, I don't think he's allowed at the Comedy Works up yeah. there. I think he's banned. I think that's why he doesn't go up there. He's top that, on my list, though, dude, for sure. He's, he's the funniest human being alive. <laughs> <laughs> Have you met him in person? Yeah, we've hung out a bunch. He's my homie. Really? I did, po- I did the logo for his podcast. I've done all those guys' logos. How all did the you get into that? Podcast. Just on accident. My well, like my sister, like I said, has worked at the comedy store for a long time in La Jolla. Oh. So she knows Ari and some of those she knows all the comedians that come through there or whatever. And um she had actually got me some Rogan tickets through Ari when the show was sold out when he was down here in San Diego. And like last minute got me really good seats. So I ended up doing just a little poster design for the little marquee window at the store in La Jolla, just as a thank you for, uh, for hooking me up tickets, you know, like hundred dollar worth of tickets. So it's like, oh, I'll just make like a little eight by 10 little flyer. So, and I think it, it may, you know, my sister probably insinuated that it would be something nice to do. It's probably, I'm much more selfish than that. <laughs> but you know, like I, if somebody scratches my back, I'm, I'm, I almost feel an obligation that I want to do the same in return. Even if it's something minor, like a, like a thank you card or something, not that I'm sending thank you cards to anybody, but just on that level, like to, to show some sort of gratitude for if somebody does something for me, because I think that's really important. I I feel like helping each other out in this sort of modern society has become less and less prevalent. Um, But as we move back into this do it yourself society, we're seeing more of, like artists helping out other artists and like really com- grouping together and you know supporting one another. Um, so yeah, I just did those prints for uh, for Ari for that show, and then um, I guess Rogan saw him at some point after that. So and I guess I had had Ari on my podcast like around the same time frame. I listened to that one recently. It was a good one. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Technical difficulties getting that one together, but luckily it, it made it. Um, and that's uh, so I had him on, and then I think I had Red Band on sometime after that, or maybe Joey did the show, and then Red Band came on, and I helped Brian with um, with his logo. He needed to like he needed to vectorize the logo, and so I was like, "Well, just ship, send me the what you have," and then. I went and like cleaned up everything and made it all nice, which goes back to my uh, sort of OCD with line work. Like it's really, I was looking at another artist who's a friend of mine, who's a really good painter. And I noticed that the quality of line that he was using in his work was so much different than what mine was. But when you look at it, you don't notice because it's a part of the work. Like it's, it looks like how it's supposed to look for his work, but like, the difference in like the amount of water in a brush to where like the line work that I'll do, it's solid on all sides all the way through. Like there's a line quality that I yeah. won't that waver. Like I'm such a, I'm such a fucking obsessive asshole that I got, if I make a little tiny splotch wrong, I got to keep fixing it. Um, well, you're going to inspire me to do the same now. Cause it looks great. Yeah. So then you just, so you just started doing work for them and then just integrated into doing a whole bunch of work for them. Yeah. Joe, Joe asked me to do, um, the poster for the Atlanta show or maybe no, the Chicago show I think was first. Um, he, he just had a big show that was coming up that was important to him that he sort of wanted to commemorate with something. So he just asked me to make a sort of old school, like San Francisco psychedelic style poster. 
of uh, it's a portrait of him, Joey Diaz, and Duncan Trussell, who and who also ended up being on the Atlanta bill, which was when he recorded his his last special that he did was on 420 in Atlanta. So uh, we did posters for those, and I got to travel with the guys and hang out and. You know, like I go to the UFCs and hang out with those dudes and that sort of cool. shit. Just and it's just it's all like accidental, really. You know, like well, just, it's like, not really because like, you're a good artist, so it's not completely accidental. It was like it was talent matching up with talent. So that, but I think it's yeah. cool that you that your kind of mentality just kind of uh, bonded in a way. You know what I'm saying? Like they they have the same kind of mentality that you're going with, and it just kind of happened to merge together. And it's uh, yeah, yeah, I thought it was cool. Yeah, and you know, it's been great, man. Like I get more support from the death squad community than I do oftentimes from the art world community. Like I almost feel I, I saying I'm ostracized is way super dramatic, but I definitely feel like an outsider in the outsider art world, you know. Just to use those as classifications. Like I'm definitely not in the cool kids club or whatever, you know, (laughs) that should still exist. Like these weird hierarchies there are. And what's interesting is these hierarchies are dependent upon these old gallery structures. And even like the way that, uh, like the way juxtapose and arrested motion and all these, like all these big art blogs are sort of dictating what's popular amongst culture which is it's strange that those things still sort of play a role but i mean and then on on, you know to play devil's advocate advocate of my own opinion on that like it's obvious that people are also drawn to the i'm using cool kids again just in quotes just for classification um the, the the other people are drawn to these people who are making good work you know, and you're a self-taught I, artist, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, but it's such a, a double-sided. It is. Idea. Like, yeah. you're not. You didn't go to college. For I art. did not. I actually. I've been very. I dropped out of high school. Whoa. My senior year, just because I didn't very much get along. Well, I was gonna get in trouble. I was probably gonna get kicked out and have to go to another school. But I decided to leave and just do homeschool to finish and get my diploma. But so I, it's funny, like even in jujitsu, I was just telling uh, my girl yesterday how I really just like to roll, which is like the uh, sort of open mat, just uh, people grappling without, you know, the calisthenics, the sort of structuring rules of the professor having a class, you know, somebody telling you what to do, telling you to do a certain number of push-ups, like... I'm not so much interested in that. I'm more interested in the craft itself. But um, for schooling, so, like, I've always been very anti-authoritative and which kept me from learning from other people for a long time, which inevitably led me to self-teaching, which I feel like a good portion of my education is based on the books that I decided to get from the library and read, you know, the history topics that I decided to delve into and and find more about besides what the like bullshit like cotton candy version is that we're that we're taught in schools or whatever so on that level like I feel self-educated and then for painting and making art like since I had been already doing it for my whole life I've already had the education building up and had already seen what was capable like I said so I had a sort of a goal that was not necessarily that I set but was there that I saw something to aim towards. So I was going to say, you aspired to this. I mean, would you, when you were growing up, were you were like, I'm yeah. going to be an artist. I really want to be an artist and I really want to go forth and put everything, all my effort into doing this. And that's why you felt brave enough to say, I'm dropping out of school as well. I'm going to be an artist. For me, it was, I learned from other people for sure. Like when I was a, a uh, you know, growing up, I always drew the comics, like the Sunday comics and shit, uh-huh. you know, like I thought that was the avenue. I always knew that I was going to make shit. I had no idea that there was an art world or an art market. I, I had, it's, it's so egotistical and like ridiculous, but I always had this like idea that I was supposed to strive for something like to be more than just average, even though I find myself about, you know, an average human being in the mix of everything. But like, I wanted to, I wanted to strive to be greater for some reason from a young age. Like I had this like 
urge to be great. Like I wanted to be in history books or, you know, like I think as kids, I maybe even more so now want to be famous. And I didn't really have that idea of wanting, wanting to be famous, but like I wanted to be one of those artists that I saw in the history books. Yeah. You know, like I had that sense that I wanted somebody to talk about me a hundred years from now. And a lot of that I feel like has some connection to the natural human fear of death. And I, which I had a very strong fear of death as a, as you know, maybe a young man, I guess not even so now, but more so like around like when my first grandparent passed away. I think when my, my grandfather who I painted with, when he passed away, I feel like there was a moment where I was like, oh, this shit ends. Like I felt like there was a moment where I realized that. And there, there was a moment that I had with my grandparents on the East Coast too, where it felt like, oh, that's the last time I'm going to see them, you know, to where a very a finality that I found very frightening as a young man, a, sort of that encouraged the idea of making things that may last longer than this physical body. And I didn't know what that meant as a child or as a teenager or even like in my 20s. Like a lot of times I was just making shit for the fun of it because it was fun to do. Um, that... Oh, I forget. God, there's so many. We keep losing our points here. What's going on with us today? <laughs> yeah. I but, had a point there. Shit. No, so you're t- totally right, though. And in some ways, you're, I, I know what your point is. In, in a way, you have this like desire that you were growing up with that you felt you wanted to leave something behind because you didn't want to just stop existing. Yeah. Think about how many artists in the past just stopped existing. But there, but there's paintings that people have. Like, people bought my paintings. There's paintings of mine sitting in somebody's house. They may end up in Goodwill and someday, maybe 30 years down the line, they're in Goodwill or something, but somebody else might pick it up and have it in their house. So in a way, though you may not be in a history book, your paintings could still last enough in small groups or circles. Because I had a similar feeling like having my son now. Now my son is also that extension of me. So I have these like yeah. these paintings. I had a similar feeling with my paintings, thinking like, I want to leave something behind. I don't want to just disappear, right? Yeah. So, but now that's my son has that same feeling to me, like this thing, like the, my, that is literally my genes. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's literally, I talk about that a lot. That, yeah, that's, that's me the... carrying on, I guess, in a way. That's my that's my father carrying. I'm hoping, like, <laughs> I'm hoping not to pass a lot of my asshole genes on to him and pass maybe the good things on. I'm trying to teach him a lot of the good <laughs> things. So I'm trying to build that whole like with your, what your grandfather did with you and paint with you and like have that experience of like passing on that joy of creating you know whether it's artwork whether it's fucking music whether it's something i want to like instill that in them and i guess that's also a way for me to transmit who i am into him and hope that i can that my same ideology somehow lives on in him and i think paintings can be similar to that you know it's a passing on to of your intellect in a way I think that the idea of having children is the idea of everlasting life, like the the transferring yourself to a, a new entity yeah. still is a way to, to live forever. Yeah. It's interesting. I also wanted to ask you, because, okay, so you you dropped out of school, and when did you start working with Shepard Ferry? So you've had some really good connections in your life. Like, when when did that happen, and how did that happen? Yeah, that was right out of high school. I was getting into graffiti, but that's by saying that that leads to certain connotations. I never really got into graffiti. Like I was always a fan of it and I practiced it for a little while and found that I was not very good at letter forms. Um, but I always painted with my friends that were good with letter forms and would do figurative stuff and that sort of thing. And like I was also at that time, my mom, again, who an artist was um, beginning to get interested in graphic design which at the time was in its heyday to a certain extent around like 97 96 it was like illustrator two or three or something you know like it was pretty new yeah um so i had started to learn graphic design and at some point like around my senior like a like maybe my junior year of high school there was a kid who would bring in graffiti magazines all the time and so like there was stuff that i kept seeing over and over and mike giant i know we're talking about shepherd but mike giant was one of the ones that i had ended up seeing quite a bit who i now have a close relationship with um but eventually i started seeing poster making as being a way to get art out to people and this was before 
I think street art maybe it's it'd been a term since the seventies, you know, for a long time, but it wasn't the street art that we know now. Like it wasn't a catchphrase that is uh generally known or whatever. So like I had started seeing some people doing things that I, I found really interesting. Like I had already in, appreciated the idea of like uh taking over public space with the act of graffiti. Like I'd liked the the sort of anarchistic ideas behind it. I liked the the methods. I liked that people were I saw everybody making things as artists. So, you know, it, I I appreciated all those things. And so at some point I, I came into postering and at the same time I was learning how to use the computer to manipulate in color and change the things that I was already making, like scanning my drawings in and being able to, you know, make some sort of political type poster or something, but it, mine were all tongue in cheek things that I was making. At the time. I wasn't even political at all. Like, um, I think my first poster was, uh, image of Jack Kerouac, like all <laughs> distorted who I, yeah. I'm still fascinated with yeah. to this day. But at that time specifically, I was like, Holy shit, this dude is fucking the best. He was, he was a yeah. badass dude. Still. I still think he's the best. He was. He inspired my life of being just uh, exploring, you know what I'm saying? Like, not... His hyper-awareness of all his surroundings, like, reading his books and seeing how uh, romanticized he made everything, I found the same thing in doing, putting work on the street. Now, like, all of a sudden, I start putting up stickers, and all of a sudden, I start seeing all these fucking Andre the Giant heads everywhere. Like, this whole brand new fucking world opens up where, like, I'm looking at my city in a whole brand new way as opposed to how even, like, like I grew up hanging out in the southeast portion of San Diego a lot, which is really high uh, Latino gang area. So, like, Shit. I was seeing, like, gang graffiti all the time. And it didn't really have any effect on me. Like, I liked some of the letter forms. I was like, oh, that one looks... I knew when they looked good. And even when they looked bad, I still, like, liked how, like, gangster it looked. Mm -hmm. Um, But so at some point, I started looking at my city in a new way and was like, holy shit, this is a new world. I I can interact with not only these people on the street who are also doing the same things as me, but a brand new audience where it's not just my mom and my sister and my homies that I hang out with seeing my drawings and liking them. Like, now, okay... I can get them out to this broad audience and I'm getting interactions. Like I started getting emails. Like I probably got my first email, which I still have my first Yahoo address, which I still is my Yahoo email is agent. O at Yahoo. Yeah. There's there's more to it, but I'll just leave it at that Okay. because my, my name at the time was agent orange, which I had, I sort of knew that there was a punk rock band named agent orange, but there was a, um, I think it came, it came from a uh, Wu-Tang or Method Man line where it was like uh, something about Vietnam, something there was a line that said Agent Orange killing them slowly or so, you know, some, so, some sort of phraseology like that, that I used for one of my first posters. I think the Jack Kerouac one, I think I used a Pulp Fiction quote, which of course, like right about that time, Pulp Fiction was like the shit. Still the uh, shit the shit right yeah, it really is it's pretty awesome i used the line or maybe it was you know actually it was um reservoir dogs so i used the line you don't need uh luck when you have instinct or something to that nature so like That's i good. thought you know i really thought i had a lot of bravado like whenever i did stuff on the street i had this mentality that i was a ghost and nobody could actually even see me doing it you know, like I pretended to be invisible to a certain <laughs> extent because it's scary, dude. That shit was scary at the time. Like, was it? Yeah, that's a whole different culture, man. Because I grew up in a the, rush. I grew up in the country, basically. I grew up in the woods where if I was graffitiing, I was going to be on somebody's house. You know, it was going to be on a tree or something. So I now that I'm older and I really start to learn more about that culture, especially in California, I admire it so much. Like, be, so did you grow up actually in the city of San Diego? I live in the eastern. I don't now, but I grew up in the eastern portion of San Diego. So it's kind of like, it's a, you know, kind of rural almost, like a mix. It's an older, in terms of California, like turn of the century city. So it's like there wasn't much uh, like art culture in terms of where I actually like resided. But if you looked for it, you could find things. I, I always had a tendency to play in gutters and like drainage ditches as a yeah. kid. 
So like crawdads and shit would always be at the end of drainage ditches. There'd always be like a runoff area where there'd be like a little pond. Yeah. And we'd always try to catch crawdads and fuck with them and like make them fight and shit. And <laughs> so sometimes you would see stuff there. But I think once I started riding the trolley line, which is runs from the eastern portion of San Diego all the way to like the downtown area. That's when you really got to see some of this stuff because it was a lo- obviously all the writers knew to to get an audience you you could write on the train lines you know like they did in New York because as everybody goes by they pick out all the stuff and you know even though you're on a fast moving train like the guy who has the dopest shit you could just pick it out by like the shape and color even if you can't read it right away like you know like who's dope and I guess like so around just getting out of high school, like 18, I started hanging out downtown. So I really started to see downtown San Diego has gone through what people would define as gentrification over the last 10, 15 years. So there was a lot of uh, cool wall murals and a lot of graffiti, a lot of, there was a lot of, that was right when a lot of construction was happening. So there was tons of retaining walls and spots where, uh, posters and graffiti and painting and writers could get up at. So there was this, all of a sudden, I became hyper aware of this environment and wanted to get involved any way I could. So at some point, uh, I met Shepard and we, actually, you know, my boy, Sean Du, he, he was the one who introduced me to, like, I started seeing it, but he was like, oh, this is this dude, and he's doing this, this, and this. And he had already kind of been hip to what was going on. And I was like, oh, shit. And the we had some magazine that had an ad to get stickers in it and saw that the address was in San Diego. And I was like, oh, shit. I, I thought it was just somebody who had come through town and, like, wrecked it for a little bit. But turns out he was working here in San Diego. So at some point in time, I think we had, like, done a – a similar wall, like a wall in the same vicinity. So he had seen the stuff that I was doing and me and my homeboy, uh, we were like, we were crushing San Diego every week. We were just, cause nobody knew what it was like. So Shepard was already crushing it and we saw what was capable. Again, it was those moments where you'd be like, Oh, here's this thing. Let's see. Let's see what happens when I jump into the current, you know? And, so he was crushing it and cops weren't really on to what it was like postering had this sort of in putting up stickers had a sort of legal loophole section oh. uh, at, at some point, but Shepard ruined that because as soon as he started crushing it, all the cops and uh, the, you know, the law in downtown San Diego were like, fuck this shit. We're going to put an end to this um, because it started to get people were like seeing the big brother posters and thought that it was like a cult. And there was all these like weird myths that were starting to form. And this is all before, you know, he was well known in the art world, but it was before he had any I mean, he had national recognition, but it wasn't nearly the level that it is now. Right. Yeah, what like, year was that? Ninety seven, ninety eight. Um, I started working for him in 99. I became at, at some, so at some point we linked up and his assistant, um, Geraldo Yapez, who is another awesome San Diego artist, stencil artist, uh, from Tijuana actually, but lives in San Diego. Uh, he, maybe he's from somewhere else in Mexico. Maybe I'm racist for just assuming that he's from Tijuana. <laughs> but anyway, so he, he was off to do his own thing, which is the nature of being an assistant for a while. You eventually just need to go off and make your own work. So I ended up taking his place when he, he left. So I was his assistant for two years and like, you know, it was just bullshit work. Like I had to go like for that time frame, every single big poster that you saw on the street, like the big billboard size posters, like I I was the one that made all that shit. All the ones that were hand painted that were all hand colored. I painted all those fucking things. There was canvases like there, two canvases just sold recently that I uh, because I know that there hasn't been very many canvases made by him. I definitely worked on two of those. So like my, my hand is in there somewhere, nice. you know, obviously he worked on them too, but yeah. like, I was like, all right, fill in the middle space of the fucking, you know, fill in the chunk of the color type so of shit. How does that? Yeah. And then eventually I had to. I was going to say, that's weird. Like, so the whole assistant thing, like you, you really did, just, you have to work on these actual paintings as well. Yeah. I mean, fuck yeah. And even like, um, like 
you know how he he makes his graphics using a, a like a 1970s style design technique with um, Ruby Lith. You know what Ruby Lith is? No, I don't know anything um, about printing. It's basically a clear plastic with a layer of red film over the top that's that's stuck to it. Um, sort of like uh, like the the stuff that comes on your electronic pieces that protect your screens or whatever. You have to peel that first layer off. It's kind of like that. But so you exacto knife out all the parts that you don't want in there. And you have to go in and hand peel all the stuff out. Now, if you think about some of his work, there's a lot of little like sharp arrows and points, and it's it's a it's a task to get it all peeled off of of the the ruby lift. So like I would do shit like that all the time. I had to sign his checks sometimes. <laughs> he was out of town because I saw the. I saw the signature so much, like I could almost do it. Like I could probably still almost do it now. I think it's a little bit more clean now, but back then it was like just a uh, two quick letters and like scribbles. So like <laughs> I had to sign checks. It was it was crazy, man. It was a totally different time period. And then eventually they were moving. He was moving to Los Angeles, and I, I had slight ambitions of doing it. I think I, I forget exactly why I did it, but at at some point I realized that like. I was bored fucking putting stickers in an envelope and getting motherfucker to sign posters and ship all that shit and deal with all of that. And I knew I just needed to do my own thing. So at some point I, I, I left and then did some other shit. But that was sort of my – that was my art school. So that two years – because I also worked with Dave Kinsey because they – Shepard and Dave Kinsey also shared Black Market at that time. So like, but again, it, part of, I just told the story when I was at my brother's graduation, I, I had hoped that I was going to run into my art teacher that kicked me out of his class. The only art class I ever took, I got kicked out of because <laughs> I refused to draw the stupid shoe because I didn't draw it well. I turned it into a robot or something. And it's better than a shoe. I knew at that fucking moment right there that art had no rules. Like nobody could tell me what it is that I could make. I could draw the same. I could draw the Mona Lisa for now until the end of my days and fuck off to anybody who says that I can't. Like I knew that nobody could dictate what it was. Even if I got shit on, if I got harassed, even if people liked it and whatever, no matter what the reaction, like I got to choose what it is that I made. And it was getting kicked out of that class that allowed me to become conscious of that. But I, some, obviously, my inner um, little child does give a fuck. You and wants to give a fuck. Yeah. yeah. If you find joy in the things that you're making, like if you find some point of the art making process or whatever it is that you're doing, if you find some joy in it, then fuck off to everybody else. Like, I think that's the biggest thing. We, we put so much, and I say this in a very, uh, contradictory way because I care about what people think, but like you really just got to say fuck it, and that's what part of this honesty thing is. Like with the podcasting and not being ashamed, it's just okay. Like here's this thing that I at some point have embarrassment about, but I don't have to just because somebody else thinks something somewhere else. Like who gives a fuck. You I know? agree. That's a great way to think. But you got to learn <laughs> because it. then you're it's, free, it's, right? It's a process. Yes, exactly. Like you know, still do good in your society. Like it always feels better to do good. Don't just be selfish and like just say fuck it. I'm gonna do whatever I want. Like, <laughs> you know. So you've been you have over a hundred. How many episodes are you on now for your podcast? One hundred and three. One hundred and two or three, I think. One hundred and two. Yeah, you're number dude, fifteen it's... for me. So the idea of going to one hundred and three seems like I don't know. That doesn't seem real. That seems like a lot. When did you start that? What year? Like probably about three years ago. I oh, guess. okay. So maybe let maybe two. I fuck. I don't know. It it sort of it just built up sort of naturally. It was so weird. The beginning with like the first fifteen are so strange. Like a lot of, <laughs> a lot of them are odd. All the recording equipment is all fucked up. I don't know how to do interviews. Like it's hey. like. I feel your pain. I'm with you. <laughs> that's what I'm going through. And you know, it's like, how can you know what the fuck you never knew? Like, if you've never exactly. done something, that's what keeps people from doing a lot of things. It's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to fuck up. And then people are going to make fun of me because I fucked up. But it's like, you learn from that shit. You learn from fucking up. You learn from people making fun of you. You learn from your own insecurity. Like, and that grows you, builds you up as a person. So, like, now they're sort of second nature. And I still, it's funny. Like, I still get nervous before I do them. Like, 
You know, I get little butterflies. It's actually a little easier on this side of the fence, which now only because I've done 102 podcasts, like I know that I could just fucking rant for an yeah. hour and a half. Yeah. You know? it's, a- it's like... I think it's genetic for me too. Like when my whole family gets together, like we're all getting together this Sunday for my niece's birthday. And like, we're, I'll for sure have some sort of uh, sociological debate with somebody at the house, you know, just be, we're just going to have a conversation. Like my girl's dad came to one of our Christmases and was like, holy fuck. Like had no, like he was like, I've never heard a group of people sit around and have like these sort of what some people might perceive as uncomfortable conversations. Like my lineage has no problem with breaking balls, like calling you out on bullshit or like making you sort of or questioning people as to what exactly their motives are. Like really, if somebody has an opinion, they're like, all right, please explain, you know, like that sort of shit. Like, like I kind of, it's almost a natural transition into just recording this shit. But as I've had the artists on, you know, like getting artist stories, like there's a comfort level for people who are creating things to hear other people with similar stories. Like to know that like somebody like Jeff Soto, who's a fairly, you know, a well-known artist has had some type of struggle in his life or, you know, an insecurity about something like it it helps people who maybe at a lower tier in the art world be like, okay, somebody else has struggled like I have. I'm not alone. I think that's the biggest thing, like understanding, because especially for artists, we spend so much fucking time alone. Sometimes you get detached from community and it feels like you're so far outside a, a community base, especially in the art world, because like, so for like comedians, they have places where they go. You know, each they go to a club and they know there's going to be some other comedians there. Like there's hangouts, but we, we don't get all that much opportunity to hear and talk with artists that much. You know, there's so many avenues for everybody else to get ideas out there. I mean, if you're an actor, you can go on nighttime talk shows, whatever. Like um, if you're a, if you're a musician, you can go out and do and you get interviewed. But how many actual audio or video interviews do you have with artists? There's really not that many. And that's why like huh. you were doing it. And I was like, I was like, I want to do it. Why not? Because why not open up a discussion? Why not start yeah. learning from everybody? You know, because that's it's, it's great. Really, it's it's more than just technique. It, art's way more involved than just technique. It's a whole mental state. Yeah, I saw you know I saw that that void um, just in liking comedians' podcasts, which exactly. I that's saw, what inspired me. Well, I saw that having these comedians tell their stories opened up a brand new audience to their craft. And when I got into this, I think there was maybe one or two other art podcasts that were, and though they were focused on like illustration and maybe like East Coast artists that weren't like the group of artists that I've grown up with with, for the last 10 years, you know, that I've worked with and that sort of thing. So like, I wanted to get that story out there. Like I figured like, okay, here's this void. Let's fucking fill it and see what happens. And, you know, it's at 102 episodes. I feel like just now people are trying, are catching on. Like, I feel like there's going to be like this awakening moment where all of a sudden people are going to realize that there's this vast library that I've uh, put together or curated or whatever that um, is a, a huge library of information for future artists or, or people working now, you know, and, so you've talked to a bunch of artists, right? I've learned a bunch just from doing 15 episodes, just, you know, how to think about the art process, but also like how to actually do certain things. Do you, how much has podcasting actually made your art better? And like, maybe in what ways? I don't know, man. Like, I think it's more mental. Like, yeah. I know the Taylor McKimmons episode, like really made me think about art making differently. Um, not in a way that I could really describe, but like more like a sense, like a feeling or something. Like, I don't know. Something changed when I did that episode, but not, I don't know if technically I've much has changed due to that. Even though I do try to talk to people about like their technical like processes. I don't know. I, I don't know that it, maybe I have, maybe I've picked up things. Not sure. I think I a feel lot like of it's I, mental. Yeah. Yeah. It's more like an attitude, like a what people's state of mind are like is like what the 
like you know, I'd like to find out what in people's lives has caused them to make certain things. Like I, I, I enjoy the psychology a little bit more than the actual technical thing, but I put that, I'd like to get that stuff out there for people who want to know, like for, I was, when I was trying to figure out how to do line work, I went through like the Holy grail search of inks and brushes to find out exactly how to do that. And really what that came from was trying to, be as good as Margaret Kilgallen and after that Barry McGee you know like the that was like the the high watermark of like line quality and Dave and not only that but Dave Kinsey his line work is impeccable his, now he's a little more abstract now with the things that he does but you could still see the line work that, that comes up and you'll see a recognition like he, he was a, a big mentor for me you know 18 to 21 of uh, like learning to build a face, like the the line structure of what, how to make something three dimensional uh, with two dimensional lines is very difficult, you know, when you're not using shading. And so Dave was a, a really big influence in that aspect, and in Mike Giant too. Like those four really were were the people who uh, I aspired to have the line quality of. But particularly Margaret Kilgallen, like I was in love with the line quality that she had and the the ease in which she did it. And she actually talks about that in some of the interviews. Obviously, she's not with us anymore, but she talks about the those processes for her in some of like a KBP, KPBS interview, I think. Um, so I went on like the holy grail search of which inks, which brushes, what what will make sense, you know, what will will bring this quality that I'm searching for. And now that I've found it, I share it with people. Like there's an idea where like, uh, you know, a craftsman gets taught by, you know, gets apprenticed by uh, a master. And then those secrets are supposed to be kept with the apprentice until they become the master and pass it on. Well, I feel like in this moment, I, I'm more apt to share what it is that I've learned so that maybe people don't have to do that search. I've tried to jumpstart people's ability to do the things that they want to do and maybe save them some of the pain and agony of going and finding and making all the mistakes that I made. Now, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but that's just the way it feels good to do. So I've, yeah. I've always shared instead of like keeping secrets of how I make things. You know? Do you want to share how you... How you got well, better life? Like, what did you buy? Like, what was it that worked for you? Well, I seriously, I went through every single ink, every single type of acrylic that I could find. When in, in terms of doing like solid black lines, um, now I use a mix of uh, either Windsor and Newton makes a black spider ink. Um, I like that one a lot because it's waterproof and it's opaque. But I also use Speedball. Uh, super black which it comes in a really big container and it's fairly inexpensive so i like using that too and it's super opaque but i'll mix um either black gesso which i've been a fan of for a long ass time which i only found because i was looking to try to make a more um flat tone with my with my line work i wanted it to be less sheen like that i was getting from the acrylics and from the inks and stuff so at some point i was like oh hey dummy why don't you mix the two together so i started mixing the black gouache or the black uh, gesso into the ink to dull out the ink a little bit so it had a little bit more of a flat uh a flat texture uh the ink also allowed the black gesso to be more diluted so it was more of a fluid as opposed to like a and black gesso, the Liquitex black gesso, is actually pretty fluid to begin with. It's not very thick like a like a primer gesso, um, but it still can be used as that. But now I I don't use the black gesso as much. Um, but now I like to use super or jet black gouache in with the ink, which uh, has a little different viscosity and uh, different opaqueness, but it's really rich. And, it, and it's really flat, so it, it sort of takes the place of, of those things. So I mix, I have a sort of different mix for how I do those, but it's uh, it's Indian ink and black gesso or, or black uh, gouache. You paint in acrylic as well, right, for the color? Yeah, yeah, I use acrylic. Do you use any kind of mediums or is it just water? 
No, mostly just water. Some some on there's a, there's paintings that I have used matte mediums again to sort of one to take the uh, the sheen down of some of the stuff. But uh, yeah, I like to use Liquitex acrylics. I I just I started my when I started my painting career, I used a lot of house paints. Uh, as like background stuff, I use a lot of spray paint too. Spray paint is a good like background filler to like cover a lot of space with not a lot of materials. But I use a lot of like water. I don't use watercolor, but I use uh, acrylics in a watercolor fashion a lot of times mm-hmm. to uh, sort of extend their life, their life frame, their lifetime. At one point, I had an alter ego that I used to sell stuff online. And people have started to find me based on what my alter ego was and are now like sending me images of old paintings that they have in their collection. And it's just like, oh, fuck. I don't even want to look at all these old things because it's all my mistakes. It's all the stuff that I've learned from. It's from putting in the, I don't, you know, they use the 10,000 hour, you know, time frame is like when you manage. I probably got. I, I don't even know how many hours I have in my life, but a majority of them were spent making things. And all those things I put out into the world. I never like like hoarded them. I never was like, oh, these aren't... I always thought they were great when I made them. And I was like, this is my best shit right now. This is fucking the dopest shit I've ever made. And I put it out there and I sold it to people, you know? And uh, sometimes later on, it's like, God, I was such a hack, you know? But it's, you have to be a... I hate the people that are just fucking phenoms that are great right out the gate, but you know, kudos to them. But for me, I got to fuck up for a long time before I kind of figure out what it is that I'm doing. All those paintings make me feel uncomfortable with myself. It's funny. But again, and I should take my own advice, right? Like say, fuck it. Why, why would I care? Like that was the best I could be at that time. Like who am I to say that I'm supposed to be better than that? Like I only knew and was capable of what I was able to do. And I could only learn from those experiences and move on. Like, it's, and I, you have to keep reminding yourself that because it's like, we always expect ourselves to be the fucking best at whatever. It's like this world is so wrapped around our, like the universe revolves around our own mind. Like we just want to be the best all the time, but fucking you got to suck sometimes, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's, it's good to hear. Cause I, I suck plenty of times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too, brother. <laughs> that's it. That's what, yeah, that's what you ended on. Sometimes you have to suck. That's how it goes. It's the nature of the beast. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Well, Hey, it's been awesome. Yeah, thanks so much for, for doing this. I'll let you know uh, when it comes out. Do you have anything coming up or anything you want to promote or anything like that? Yeah, um, first, thanks for having me, dude. I, I, I'm super appreciative that I got to babble on somebody else's show for a couple hours. <laughs> um, well, you can check out my website that we were just talking about, MikeMaxwellArt.com. Um, you can find the links to my podcast. It's it's, I do the Live Free podcast. I don't know if I've said the name yet. Um, no, the whole which time is a terrible about. title for if you're trying to search it in iTunes because yeah. every podcast <laughs> is live and free. So it's like nothing, you know, it's Live Free, but, you know, just the word by itself can be taken anyway. So if you search Mike Maxwell in iTunes, all the shows come up or Mike Maxwell podcast or Live Free is in there. It just it becomes a much broader search uh, frame. All that shit will be on my Facebook and Twitter. I'm uh, at Mike Maxwell Art on most of the stuff on all the social medias and Instagram. And all right, brother. Hey, yeah. Thanks a lot again for uh, for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, man. All right, have a good one. 